thinking about for us this morning in our scripture reading where no matter what happens in the world and in the elections and in other parts of the world and wars and rumors of wars and, and uh, all the things we see in the world, uh, Jesus reigns. He reigns from shore to shore. He reigns in the heavens and the earth. He, he rules as king over all of his creation. It's not like he came to rule over a creation that wasn't his. He came to rule over his own creation, and so he does. And he reigns and he rules, and he is enthroned in heaven above. And we can be here this morning because of his great love for us in laying down his life to give his life as a ransom to redeem sinners who had rebelled against him and rebel into his presence. And that's where we are this morning, and it's just a, a wonderful truth. The gospel is such good news. It is uh, the best news you will ever hear in the world. There is nothing better than the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things he shared with his disciples um, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, and you can turn there to John chapter 16 because that's where we will be this morning looking at verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Uh, but we've, we've been seeing this last day of the Lord before he goes to the cross, and he's been talking about all kinds of blessings that he's going to give to his disciples. And part of the reason he's doing this is because they're anxious. Uh, they're, they're anxious that Jesus has told them he's departing, and they're somewhat fearful that Jesus in his presence is now going to be removed from them, and they don't quite understand what is going on. And, and so Jesus tells them, and we looked at this last week, he tells them, gives us helpmates as marriage partners in this life is to sometimes uh, correct us and to help us see things better. And my wife did that for me last week as we went through this passage. And she said, you know, that passage that we went through is such a there is such a, a blessing and a goodness in that passage. And, and she often helps me. And she says, but I, I think you, missed, you, you failed to bring, that, to bring that out. And I thought, oh, Lord, I thank you for that correction. And, and I went through this passage again, and I, and I did look at it with, with different eyes. And I and, and see that it really is something remarkable about it in that Jesus doesn't leave us alone, but he gives us the gift of his spirit to go before us. And that is such a gift from him because Jesus doesn't leave his disciples, but he is very much present with us in the presence of the spirit. And, and it's a blessing for all of us. Our Lord has not abandoned us. Even now, he is not physically here with us, but he is fully present with us in his spirit he has not abandoned us and left us alone in the world. He's always with us through the Spirit. He's always at work in the world through his word and through his people. And Jesus told us last week that it is to our advantage that he actually physically departs because in his departure, the Spirit will come to dwell with us. And so we have nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about. We have, we have no reason to tremble in a world of darkness and failures because we serve a risen king and a reigning king and his spirit has been given to us to help us to carry out that mission of making 
him known to the world. And these verses this morning in verses 16 to 33, Jesus transitions here from talking about this great gift of the Holy Spirit to talking about his coming resurrection. And the reason that Jesus now brings their minds from that gift of the Spirit to the coming resurrection is because at the end of the day, all of these blessings of the Spirit, all of these blessings of Christ's presence with us, all of the blessings of the good news of the gospel and salvation and forgiveness of sin, all of it is tied to his resurrection. All of it. If Jesus does not die and rise again, we have no victory over sin and death. If Jesus does not die and rise again, we have no gift of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus doesn't die and rise again, we have no salvation. And if Jesus doesn't die and rise again, beloved, we have nothing to be joyful about. There, there is no reason to be joyful, to be happy. If Jesus doesn't rise again, then we live and we die and we never rise again. We are to be, as Apostle Paul says, the most pitied people. Because if Jesus doesn't die and rise again, your faith is in vain and your life is futile and you have no reason to rejoice or be happy at all. But, Jesus says, all that I do for the world, all the goodness that you see, everything that you have as believers in Christ, you have to be joyful about because Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and he rises again. And we see that in these verses. It's all tied to his resurrection. In chapter 16, verses 16 to 33, our Lord's going to tell them about his resurrection. And in the first place, he's going to tell us about the joy that's tied to it in verses 16 to 22. He's going to tell us about the blessing that comes with it in verse 23 to 24. He's going to tell us about the clarity that it brings in verses 25 to 28, and he's going to tell us about the peace which comes from his resurrection. So, so the joy of the resurrection, the blessing of it, the clarity that his resurrection brings, and the peace which is the result of it. And so those are the four points that we will go through as we go through this wonderful passage. And I, I pray that it blesses your heart this morning. So turn there with me if you haven't already. And let us hear the word of the Lord to us this morning from John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? 
a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We, don't, we do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you because of the way that it conveys the, the truth that you have set it forth to convey. Your word is clear, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces both joint and marrow. It's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It cuts through the hardest hearts and the most confused minds to bring new life and new light and new sight. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us of the coming spirit, but that you have also reminded us here in this passage that your rising again is the basis of all the hope that we have. 
We thank you that you loved your disciples enough to, to give your life as a ransom for them and for us. And that you would take our sin upon yourself and you would pay the price that we deserved. We know, O oh God, that we bring only into your presence our sin and our unrighteousness and our doubt. We bring before you our fear and anxiety and our lack of trust. We bring before you our selfishness. We bring, Lord, before you all of that sin that we carry within ourselves and even in our own nature. And we come humbly before you because we know that you are a God who is desiring to forgive and desiring to make us new. And you have demonstrated that, O oh God, in the giving of your Son, that, Lord Jesus, you would lay down your life to take all of our sin upon yourself and to pay the price for what we deserved. And we know that we are not worthy of life, but you are. And we know that because you were risen from the dead. You had committed no sin, and nor was there deceit found in your mouth. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so you went and were put to death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that. We thank you for giving us that forgiveness and for making atonement for our sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not remain in the grave. We thank you that you rose again so that we might be justified before a holy God because of you. We know, Lord Jesus, that you are our only hope. We have nothing else in this life but you. We have no hope apart from you. We have no joy apart from you. We can't even begin to live in this world in a way that pleases you had you not given us of your spirit we would still be lost in our sin. We would still be separated from you. We would still be plagued by our own guilt and our own shame. But you have risen again so that you might give us joy, so that you might make us realize that there is hope in your name, that there is a kingdom and you are reigning over it, that there is a salvation that you offer to this dark world, and it's only found in your name. Oh God, we live in a world that is so destined on its rebellion. We live in a world that is so committed to its evil and to its acts of unrighteousness, and a world that is lost in darkness. Lord Jesus, we pray that even this morning that you would grace us with your presence and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that eyes might be open to their sin, that sinners might be open in their hearts to turning to you for forgiveness. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would go before us this morning and you would convict the world concerning their sin of unbelief that you would convict the world regarding its unrighteousness and the lack of righteousness that they have, that you would go before us and you would 
convict the world of their wrong judgment. In putting you to death, Lord Jesus, they judged wrongly, for you are indeed the Savior of the world. And we thank you for dying and rising again. We thank you for the salvation that we have in your name. Lord, we just long for the unrepentant and the sinner to come and to know that joy. The tears that we shed are not tears of sadness and sorrow, but tears of joy. Because you have saved us from utter destruction. Oh God, may you bless your word this morning as we, as your people, seek to understand it, that we might be strengthened by it, that we might be reminded of these truths. For it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's clear from these first four verses in verses 16 to 19 that the disciples still did not grasp the reality of the resurrection. The fact that John repeats this really in an overkill fashion, if you want, highlights the centrality of the resurrection in John's thinking here um, at this point in, of his gospel. And uh, you see that in verse 16, 17, 18, and 19, where he keeps emphasizing a little while and a little while and a little while. They're asking, what, is this, what does this mean? What is he talking about? What does he mean that in a little while he'll gone and he's gone, and again in a little while you will not see me, and again in a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? All through those verses, he's John is emphasizing this because it is so central to the gospel, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And after all of their learning and their time spent with Jesus, they still couldn't comprehend a Messiah who would die and rise again. And then a, a Messiah who is leaving them and giving them a spirit, the Holy Spirit to be with them. They couldn't comprehend all, all that would come after that gift of the Spirit. And so they are totally confused at this point. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus said to them, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. And, and I really take a sort of comfort from that. I take a comfort from that because if they didn't always understand the meaning of everything that our Lord taught then I guarantee you, surely, you and I are not always going to understand everything that our Lord teaches. As clear as he is, we have issues in understanding things. And so I don't have a right, and you don't have a right to be surprised if you open up your Bible and you struggle at times to understand what is written. It's okay. We all struggle to understand things, and even the disciples did. But we should praise God for those things that are abundantly clear. We should praise God that he has given us his word. And if we are to begin to understand his word, we need to begin with those things that are very clear and abundantly clear. We need to be faithful with the light that we have, the truth that he has given to us that there is no debate over. 
There, there are so many things in the Bible that are so crystal clear, and there is no debate over it, that what we ought to do is let us then begin there. So if you've never even started and you've never followed Jesus and you're wondering about the gospel and what does all of this mean, then you know what? Begin with that which is crystal clear. Begin with that which is not debatable, which is not questioned that can't be debated by scholars and is not something reserved for seminary classes and training, but just begin with the simple, the simple truth. And the simple truth that I that I want to lay before us this morning that Jesus lays before them with all the things they couldn't understand. He lays before them the simple, simple truth that he's going to die and he's going to rise again. The implications of that, if you begin with that and you rest in that, the implications for all of the other questions and all of the other things you may have about the gospel they all kind of, they'll still be there, but they kind of take a, a, a background. Because if Jesus died and rose again, then everything that he ever said and taught and did has a whole different meaning, doesn't it? If I was here today, and I had, and I had, I guarantee you, if, if I died, and you knew I died, and you saw me buried, and that just happened four days ago, and now I'm here again today talking to you, would you not give me your ear? Would you not say, I think this guy has something to say and is worth listening to because he died, and now he's back three days later. And if I told you about what was to come, and I told you about heaven and hell, and I told you about God's judgment, and I told you about the forgiveness of sin, don't you think that that would require a, an ear, at least, to listen? Of course it would. And so Jesus is driving this home to them, and he's telling them, don't fear. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I've promised you. But I want you to know all of your sorrows and doubts and your fears they're all going to be alleviated because I'm going to be gone for a little while and then I'm going to come back and you're going to see me again. And when you see me again, your heart will rejoice. Your heart will rejoice. Jesus knew that they were troubled by his comments. He knew they wanted to ask him. He sees it on their face. He sees them whispering among themselves. He, he knows they're hungering to know more. And so he says to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? And so he turns their attention not to explaining what a resurrection is, but to explaining the consequence of his resurrection. Jesus conquers death, yes, but he conquers death that we might live joyfully through him. That's the first point. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament 
but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So this supreme conflict of the world, the flesh, and the devil is before Jesus, and it defines the response of the believer and the unbeliever. You're only in, I say this all the time, you're only in one of two categories. You're either an unbeliever or you are a believer. There's no, nothing in the middle. There's no gray area. There's nothing what the world likes to call the spiritual. Have you ever you've met those people, right? You share the gospel with them and they say, oh, I'm spiritual. I, I like faith. I like spirituality. There is no such thing as a spiritual category. What you call a spiritual category is unbeliever. Like if that's all that defines you, you're in the category of unbeliever. Either you believe in Jesus as your Savior or you don't. Believer, unbeliever. The two categories. And this sentence right here really captures the essence of that distinction. So for the unbeliever, for the one who rejects Jesus, they see Jesus' departure and his death, Jesus says, get this, as a reason to rejoice. So when they think about Jesus being crucified and buried, the world can hardly wait to see him bloodied. They, they, they can hardly wait to see Jesus and his bloodied, cold body thrown into the grave. For them, the absence of Christ in the world is what they want more than anything. To be rid of Jesus. To be rid of his name. To be rid of his presence. To be rid of his influence. To be rid of the one who calls sinners to repentance and brings the conviction of his very life and words to bear upon his rebellious creatures. The world wants nothing more than for his presence to be absent. They smirk and they mock as we wait for his return, they revile in the daytime, speaking loud boasts of folly. They love gain from wrongdoing and believe that by their evil they do good. And they believe that if there is a God, God somehow delights in them. For the world, the reprover of the world and their sins and their false teaching was silenced forever when they killed him, and they love it. It's kind of like a graduation ceremony. We're together, they're at the graduation ceremony. You ever been to this in high school or college? And they take their hats, and at their graduation ceremony, together the world throws their hats up in the air, rejoicing that Jesus is finally gone.
That's not how it is for believers, is it? These disciples in particular, there will be, Jesus says, a sadness and a grief at the Lord's death. There's going to be a time of his absence from them, and they will have a sorrow, and they will rend their garments, and they will tear them because the Lord Jesus that they loved and they spent time with, he's going to be absent from them. He's going to be buried in this tomb, in this rock, and they're going to feel that his presence is gone, and sorrow is going to overwhelm these disciples when that Jesus who loved them and whom they loved is now, in their mind, gone from his presence. They don't rejoice. They are sad that he has gone from their presence. But Jesus says here that that sorrow that they have will actually only be for a little while because he says, you will see me again and ultimately your sorrow will turn to joy. And that's exactly what happened. In John chapter 20, verse 20, we're told that when Jesus showed them his hands and his side, that when they saw Jesus, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and they rejoiced that Jesus has risen again. And so to capture this attitude, Jesus talks to them about childbirth. Men, we don't know anything about childbirth and what that goes, what it is to go through that, and no man will ever know what it is to go through childbirth. It is something only a woman can go through. And a woman that has gone through childbirth, this was a common, a common example and metaphor that, that was used in the Old Testament to talk about the and illustrate in the Old Testament the difficulties of God's people, what they will suffer before the relief and joy comes. And Jesus is going to talk to them about this example, but, but just so you understand, in the Old Testament, and if you want to turn there, you can, but Isaiah 26, verse 16 to 21, is one of the places where childbirth is used. And I just want to quickly, because I think this ties into our passage here. But Isaiah chapter 26 verse 16 to, to 21 here. It's referring to this discipline and judgment of God upon Israel because they were disobedient, they were in distress because of their disobedience. And he uses the example of a woman in childbirth to drive home the point that they will be in a period of terrible trouble before they are finally delivered and restored by the Messiah. Verse 16, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them, like a pregnant woman who rides and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord." We were pregnant, we writhed, but we, were, but we have given birth to the wind. In other words, 
This example is being used here in Isaiah in that they are under the burden of their sin. They're under the burden of their rebellion. They know that they are under God's discipline and they are writhing in pain and all that they sought to do to relieve themselves of that pain, uh, Isaiah says they could only give birth to wind. They couldn't accomplish it. They they couldn't be delivered from their suffering, from their distress. There's nothing they could do to get themselves out of that condition. And so like a pregnant woman, they are writhing in, in pain here. Now, the thing is, when you go back to our passage and Jesus uses this example The day is coming when they will finally be delivered and restored, Isaiah says in that chapter. When their dead are raised and then they will sing for joy and they will hide themselves in the chamber of the Lord for a little while, Isaiah says, until the fury of the Lord has passed by and the world is judged. And so Jesus uses the same metaphor to refer to their sorrow being turned to joy. He says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so the difference here in Jesus' use of the metaphor is that Jesus is the one who suffered in our place and was in anguish so that our sorrow may turn to joy. So he's saying, you will be sorrowful for a little while, but it is during that time of sorrow where Jesus is enduring in the place of sinners the judgment of God and the suffering of his wrath. Your sorrow is when I am taking what you deserve upon myself. You understand? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have sorrow. But when that baby is delivered, you don't remember the sorrow. So you're going to have sorrow. I'm going to be the one taking your sin. And when you see me again, that joy will be an unspeakable joy that you will have. Jesus suffers in our place and was in anguish so that our sorrow may turn to joy. So he says, so also, you have sorrow now in this first little while, but I will see you again in his resurrection, and your hearts will rejoice, and he says, and no one will take your joy from you. Beloved, If you are in Christ and you believe in the risen Lord and Savior, you have joy. And no one can ever take that joy away from you because you don't need to see Jesus with your physical eyes at this moment to have joy. To have joy and to know that you will live again in him, you don't need to see him with your physical eyes right now. What you need to see him with is those eyes of faith that see and know that Jesus is risen again. 
This is the hope that we have in Christ. Psalm 33, 21 says, Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Now, does that mean that once you come to faith in Jesus and you have that joy, does that mean, is Jesus saying that you will never have trials and tribulations in this world? And that you will never have to fight against giving in to sorrow? That's not what Jesus is saying to them at all, because even these disciples, when they did see the risen Lord and their hearts were rejoicing, guess what? Where did Jesus go after they saw him? He went back up into heaven. And he ascended into heaven, and then they too were living by faith. They too were living by faith in the Son of God and not by sight. And like them, we find ourselves in a period of a kind of sorrow at the absence of Jesus. Jesus is not physically present with us here. And so we are living in a world now by faith in the risen Lord, knowing he's at the right hand of God. And we go through a kind of sorrow and a kind of groaning, the Apostle Paul says. The whole creation groans as it waits for the appearing of Jesus. J.C. Ryle put it like this, in terms of the sorrow we go through, we groan inwardly, as Paul says, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. J.C. Ryle says, you know why? Because faith is not sight, hope is not certainty, reading and hearing are not the same as beholding, Praying is not the same as speaking face to face. There is something, even in the hearts of the most eminent saints, that will never be fully satisfied so long as they are on earth and Christ is in heaven. So long as they dwell in a body of corruption and see through a glass darkly. Love that. It's so true. Do you want to see Jesus face to face? Don't you? Don't you want to behold him and to see him? Don't you want to embrace him, embrace him and to be embraced by him? To sit at his feet, to hear his voice and to to feel his touch? And to eat with him and to be loved by him? Don't you want to see the risen Lord with your own eyes? Of course you do. And Jesus says that one day we will see him and we will be with him. He will bring us into his presence and we will dine with him and sit at his table. And we will know him like we've never known him before. And that's going to be a glorious day. And so right now we have the spirit and Jesus is fully with us by the spirit. But we don't always know that presence And it still, in some sense, falls short of that day when we will see him face to face. And so, beloved, my exhortation to you is to look back to the cross. Remember what Christ has done, how he has died and risen again. But when you look back to the cross and you see that forgiveness, do not ever forget to look forward to the coming 
of Jesus Christ and to what is promised to you and me in his name. Look back, but beloved, look forward. And how do you look forward? How do you keep your eyes focused on Jesus? What does the resurrection do to help us not only with joy, but to keep our hearts and minds focused on him? Well, Jesus goes on, and this is where he brings up that blessing of his resurrection. And the blessing of his resurrection is the blessing of of prayer. Prayer because with his resurrection and the gift of the Spirit comes, get this, access to the throne of God where Christ is. Prayer gives you access to the very presence of Jesus. So so if you're groaning and you're in pain and you're wondering about the world and the hope to come, Jesus says, in that day when he rises again and they see him and he ascends back to the Father, in that day, Jesus says, you will ask nothing of me. He's saying, "You you will not ask anything of me in my physical presence with you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Though you cannot see him with your bodily eyes, beloved, you can see him through your eyes of faith as you commune with him and the Father through the Spirit by prayer. Hebrews 4.16 puts it like this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is risen and is at the right hand of the Father, you have access to God the Father in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not apart from you because he's risen and he's again at the right hand of the Father. And this also means, this is the third point, is that we have the opportunity not of only praying in Jesus' name and receiving those blessings from God to sustain us and carry us through, but we have the opportunity of knowing God more intimately, knowing God as our Father in the most intimate way possible. Why? Because Jesus rose again and is at the right hand of the Father. It means that that veil, when you see the risen Lord, that veil is now lifted. The darkness of your sin and rebellion against God and separation from God, when you see Jesus as risen and you believe in Jesus as the risen Lord, the scripture says that that veil is lifted. So if you're sitting here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you today confess that you believe that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has risen from the dead and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Scripture says, God says that you will be saved. And what that means is that veil now is lifted And now you have access to the throne room of God and a new relationship with God that you've never had before. 
It means that you can know God more and more and more personally. You can know your creator and find help in time of need. Beloved, I pray that that veil is lifted for you. And my friend, I know, beloved, it's lifted for you. I pray you'd see the reality of it. But my friend, if you're outside of Christ, start with the simple. Jesus died and he rose again. And now he calls you to follow him. Let the veil be lifted. And so you will come to know not only Jesus, but you will come to know, get this, this is amazing, that the Father, God the Father, loves you. You see, the world doesn't know love. The world doesn't know God's love. They don't understand how much God loves really loves his creation. It was demonstrated in sending his son. And Jesus here says, I have, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He's telling his disciples, but the hour is coming. This is after his crucifixion and with the giving of the spirit, when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the father. And remember, he did that in Luke 24. After he rose again, he met his disciples, and now he was talking to them physically before he ascended. And he says, in that day, the day when I rise again and I go back to the father and the spirit comes, you will ask in my name. I do not say that you will ask the father I will ask the Father on your behalf. So what he's saying there is he's saying, I'm not saying that you'll ask me and then I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, instead, as if the Father's indifferent to you, instead he says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. In other words, he's saying, you will come to know that God the Father loves you just as much as I love you and just as much as the Spirit loves you. What a special, special reality. What a special truth to know that the God who made you and who formed you in your mother's womb, who gave you life and breathed life into you, could there be anything more glorious to know that this God who made me, who I rebelled against and I was unlovely toward, that this God now doesn't tolerate me, but loves me with a deep and abiding love. God loves those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says. In that day you will know that the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. All of it tied to his rising again. And so he's 
point here is he rises again, ascends to the Father, and when he finishes his work of redemption and the Spirit comes, you can ask anything in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of his merits and his righteousness, and the Father himself will love you and respond to you. And so we've seen the joy, the blessing of prayer, the clarity it brings in knowing the Father's love. And finally, we see the peace which is ours through his resurrection. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Ah, do you now believe? They didn't, they didn't know much about their own hearts, and neither would do we. These same men who here boast loudly and bravely that now they understand what our Lord was saying and wholeheartedly believe Jesus came from God, these are the same men who in a short time are going to be scattered and, G and leave Jesus alone. I have no doubt that they were sincere, but it is clear that they thought more highly of themselves than they ought to have and did not know themselves very well. He says, with I think a kind of sarcasm, oh, now you believe. Behold, he says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. The final hour is coming. The clock is about to strike and you are all going to bail out on me and run for your lives. When you see the Roman soldiers and the guards come with Judas into the Garden of Gethsemane, and you see them coming for me, Jesus says, you're going to leave me alone. Though I'm not alone, the Father's with me. But you think you believe and you think you're strong enough, he says, that time's coming. And he goes on to say, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, he's saying, listen, you're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulation, and you think that you believe and you think that you're strong, but keep your eyes on me when I rise again because it is by my rising again that you have peace. It's by my overcoming the world that you have life. You're going to fail in this life. Even if you're a new Christian now and you're walking or an old Christian, you're going to look at your life and you're going to have failures. And you're going to have sin. And you're going to have rebellious moments. And you're going to do things that dishonor God. And to our shame, we do that. But Jesus says, do not take your eyes off of what I have done for you. I have taken your sin, I have died, and I have risen again, and you ought to keep your eyes on me, beloved. 
Though you be scattered and though you run from Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus and what he has done in laying down his life and rising again. Because through him, beloved, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. He's fought our battle. He's won the victory for us. He has died and risen again, beloved. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. He's risen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word here, and we thank you for the time that we could spend hearing your word and being exhorted and being admonished and being called to repentance. Lord Jesus, we are, we are more than conquerors through you who loved us. We are more than conquerors because you have died and risen again, and all those who have placed their faith in you have risen again with you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, again for your sacrifice. We pray, O oh God, for the hearts to be opened this morning, not only if there be anyone here in this place who hasn't come to trust Christ, but all over the world. May your gospel be proclaimed as it is faithfully this morning, and may the Holy Spirit accompany that word proclaim so that he might redeem and save more and more people to bring them into your kingdom. Oh, Lord Jesus, we long to see you. We long to sup with you and to, to lay our hands on you and to see you face to face, to see you by sight. But we know that now is the time of faith. Help strengthen our faith. Help us to keep our eyes on you, the risen Lord, as Paul says in Colossians, setting our mind not on the things of the world, but on the things that are above. Keep our eyes set on you, and we will rejoice, and we will be thankful. Though the mountains crumble and the, they give way to the sea, Lord, we will rejoice in your name. Thank you for your comfort. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the salvation you have given to us. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Turn in your hymnal to number 124. Number 124, scripture says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's stand as we sing, lead on, O King Eternal. And we'll sing all three.